0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from The Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. The first highlights are from Richard Simmons of the Center for Executive Leadership, who provides insight into the certainty of the existence of God. Also, Katina Evans is an administrator at San Diego Christian College. Hers is a story of overcoming obstacles through trust in Christ Prior to a forum in which she participated dealing with issues of students returning to class, she spoke with me. You'll be hearing part of that conversation. Plus, David Eubank and his family are involved in doing relief and restoration work through Free Burma Rangers. He spoke with me recently and specifically discussed a particularly challenging mission on the Nineveh Plains in Iraq. Some material from that conversation is ahead. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Harry Jackson of Hope Christian Church in Maryland. He's put together a call to the church to address issues that are affecting minority communities across the nation, providing a needed biblical perspective on how to respond. Then Chip Dodd and Stephen James, they've been involved in counseling from a biblical perspective for quite some time. And they provide some observations on how people are held back from who God wants them to be by addiction and point to hope in Jesus Christ. Finally, it's Calvin Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, approaching the environment from a biblical perspective. He's back with another example of fear attributed to climate change, this time regarding rising sea levels in the Marshall Islands. This is The Intersection of Production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Richard E. Simmons III is the founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham and recently discussed content with me relative to his book, Reflections on the Existence of God, a series of essays. From that conversation, this is Richard Simmons now.
1: What I wanted to do was write a um, very well-researched book, but I really wanted it to be very easy to read because so many of the books that are written on this topic are very, as you say, they're weighty, uh, they're hard to understand, they're long. And so <clears throat> I, this book is it's 57 short essays. Each essay takes maybe seven or eight minutes to read, and it's divided into, into 10 sections. And, you know, it, it's, it clearly was intended for uh, the skeptics, but I've had so many Christians who've read it and said, this has really strengthened my faith. But I tell you, Bob, I really wrote this for younger people, because Pew Research did some interviews of, of young people who grew up in the church when they went off to college and then went out into the world, they completely abandoned their faith. And, and this, uh, this research that Pew did asked them what happened. Hmm. And so many of them said, I had doubts growing up in the church and nobody ever answered my doubts. And you know that's not, that's not a good thing. And so this book really answers so many doubts that people have and like I said, it's very easy to read and easy to understand.
0: So as you put this together, and as you mentioned, this was something that took quite some time to put together, but what would you say would be your, your starting point or your entry point as far as making the case for the existence for God?
1: Well, I start off by making the point that this is the most important issue in all of life. Um, uh, either there is a God or there's not. There's no third option. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was a, 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 a incredible 55-volume uh, uh, book series on the great books of the Western world, and um, it tackled all of these different uh, uh, issues that scholars have had to deal with over the course of time. And uh, Mortimer Adler was asked why the, the, the longest essay in this huge series was on God. And Adler, who at the time was not a Christian, he became one later, he says, this, the issue of God has more consequences for life than any other, because it has such an impact on your worldview. And so that's kind of where I started with just by making the point, this is the most serious issue in all of life, and yet so many people don't really pay much attention to it
0: so you're you're talking about this this whole perception of god and people see bad things happening how do you how do you reason with that in the book
1: yeah that in fact that's the really the, the first section that i deal with is on the issue of evil um it's like Robbie zachariah says every time he goes on a college campus that's usually the first question that they want these students want to ask is how can there be a A good God, if there's so much evil in the world. And, um, uh, you know, and I understand the argument, but people really don't think through what they're saying when they make that (laughs) statement. Because if you think about it, in order for there to be evil, there's got to be a standard of goodness. Yes. And where does that standard of goodness come from? I mean, C.S. Lewis spends a lot of time on this. You know, he says there's certain behavior that we all agree that we should ought to follow from fair play to unselfishness to courage to honesty to truthfulness. And he says, you know, we expect this from others. This is the way people ought to live. But where did this sense of oughtness come from? Where do these moral obligations come from? They have to come from the divine. And so he recognized that if there is no God, there's no place for genuine genuine moral obligations of any sort. And so if you, in fact, I, I would say this, bob i think a lot of people one of the reasons they over time come to faith is because they realize that there is, there is an absolute moral law and for them to say there's not one and that therefore there's no morality there's no moral uh, foundation they begin to realize that 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 can't be and so the bottom line is and i i, I draw this out in the book um The fact that there is evil is one of the strong arguments that there is a God, that there is a moral standard that he has given us. And, you know, basically, when we see people go against it, we realize how horrendous it is. But that doesn't mean that there's no
0: God. Richard E. Simmons III here on The Intersection. You can learn more at existenceofgodbook.com. Next up, it's the Interim Vice President of Academic Affairs at San Diego Christian College, Katina Evans, who shared about God's faithfulness to her in directing her path through law school, even though her family was homeless during that period. She also previewed an online seminar for parents whose students are facing virtual learning. From that conversation, this is Katina Evans now.
2: We uh, were homeless. We lived in a hotel. Then we lived in this borrowed kind of apartment space with uh, no furniture. We lived in a roach-infested motel for about a year. I mean, we lived in two homeless shelters. And during that time, uh, I was just continuing to trust God. I studied you know, for the LSAT, the test to get you into law school. I was accepted into law school a while, like, shortly after we moved into our first homeless shelter. Um, mm. I, I started law school as a homeless person and um, Unfortunately, my my marriage ended while I was in a homeless shelter. So in uh, November 2010, um, my spouse returned back to the East Coast, and my daughters and I moved out of the homeless shelter into a studio apartment in San Diego, where I continued for another year and finished law school in uh, 2012. Every single step was the hand of God, all the resources. Even even when I was applying for law school, I honestly I just threw my hands up. I said, God, I don't have any money. I don't have resources. I don't know how to prepare. I don't know how to study. And most of the times I, my prayers probably sounded like complaints, and I was crying with <laughs> a lot of fear. But I was like, you know what, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, then you've already uh, made the way. So I trust you. But you have to show me what steps to take. And a lot of them were baby steps. And I, I continued to happen upon resource after resource. I know I didn't happen upon it, God made it available and invisible to me. Uh, one of the scholarships I received paid for half of my tuition for law school. Just because I was a non traditional law student, I guess that meant I was older. <laughs> and so I learned it, I figured it out later. But every single step, I mean, even finding the apartment. Around the time that my spouse was about to leave, um, you know, and potentially leave the girls and me in the homeless shelter uh, by ourselves, the, I mean, all of that, just watching God's hand, just the doors open, and I, I saw His Spirit on so many people, just creating opportunities for us. There's nothing but God. I, I, this is, this is me saying yes to Him, and of course, I did the work. But he's the one that ordered my steps. He created this plan, um, and it was scary, but it was good.
0: You were someone you were sharing about some of the adversity that you had experienced. What would you offer to parents as far as really developing a biblical mindset toward the adversity they encounter?
2: One of the things that I said I, and it was just actually said out loud when we were going through most, some of the scariest moments is, you know, God, I need you to be up close and personal And the Bible, not to be a book, (laughs) you know, just a book that you put on the shelf. Um, It became the living word for me. It went the daily bread, and I don't say it just as cliche, like daily bread, to start my day in his presence, in his word. And it gave me the energy and strength that I needed just for that day, just like manna. And so I noticed I couldn't get filled up for the entire week. I had to keep coming back to the source each and every day, but that was good for me. Um, And each and every day I found peace when I went to his word. And as a parent, the authentic peace I had in Jesus Christ, it transcended to how I interacted with my children. If if we're fearful and anxious as parents, we pass that on to our kids, whether we realize it or not. But when we have the peace of Jesus Christ and even acknowledging, kids, I don't know how this is going to work. You know, I've, I used to show my kids our budget. And it was red. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm not sure how we're going to do this, but God is. will do it because he's faithful. His word says he's faithful. Uh, we return the tithe. And, and what he said in his word is that he will protect us. And he will provide for us. And I said, so it's not a tit for tat. God is who he says he is. He's faithful. And then I would sh- share with them the miracles that God did at the end of the month, how everything was taken care of. So I think also sharing with our children some of the things that we're praying and asking God for and, and not hide that from them, but also get them involved in the prayer. And then they'll have the opportunity to watch God work. This is a great opportunity to build faith for the entire family. This is not a parent's journey, this is a family's journey of faith. And the more that our children learn that they can trust God earlier in life, I pray that they won't depart from Him um, as they go off into college or off into their own families, that they will have the word as a foundation for their lives.
0: Katina Evans here on The Intersection. The school's website is sdcc.edu. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's David Eubank, the founder of the relief organization Free Burma Rangers. He shared with me about the work of the ministry, as well as its challenges in providing assistance in Iraq and lessons learned there, as he documents in the book, Do This For Love, Free Burma Rangers in the Battle of Mosul. Here now is David Eubank.
3: We got involved in the Middle East, first the Kurds and the Yazidis, in northern Iraq, Kurdistan, and in the Battle of Mosul, we were invited by the Iraqi army, and actually a big NGO that gives food but couldn't get to the front line. And so we distributed food for them, became very close to the Iraqi army, and served throughout the Battle of Mosul. I lost one of my members. I was wounded four times. Four of my team were wounded. A lot of my – over 30 of my Iraqi friends were killed. And I learned a lot about the bravery of the Iraqis. Wow. You know, as an American soldier, they were our enemy but I learned to love them and see what brave, wonderful, generous people Iraqis are. And I don't just love them in particular, like the ones I know by name. I love them in general, and that is a gift from God. Um, I also learned in the Battle of Mosul the difference between justice and revenge, and the difference is love. In other words, you've been treated unjustly, and you're going to be mad, and you should be. God's mad too at at injustice, but if Mm -hmm. you try to react out of hate, It's going to be revenge, and that hate will not stop at your enemy. It will crack you. That's the way Satan works. But if you say, this person hurt me a lot, and I want justice, the only way to justice is love. And love may mean that person needs to go to jail. Love may mean that person needs a certain punishment, but it will all be in what's best for that person. And that love, even if they don't accept it, that love will come back to you, and you'll be strong. Hurt what happened will not crush you. And so I learned that lesson that God showed me of the difference between between justice and revenge, and that's love. So these are great gifts among many that God gave us. And then we've been working in Syria also on and off the last five years. And then the last two years intensely in Syria, the last stronghold of ISIS in Bagus, which is the corner of Syria and Iraq. ISIS lost their last territory in March 2019, and we were there. And then there was the Turkish invasion of, of the Kurds in northeast Syria in October, November 2019. We were there. I lost one of my best team members and my brother there, killed right next to me by a Turkish strike. So we've, we've lost a lot. We've lost a lot of our friends. But we know that they're in heaven.
0: And you were talking earlier about learning the difference between justice and revenge. And I wanted you to elaborate, if you would, just a bit more about that. How did you see that lesson taught to you and those serving with you?
3: I prayed. I said, Lord, show me the truth of this. And then that night I, I said that again. In the morning I woke up and I said, show me the truth of what my commitment last night to go after ISIS in the name of justice feels right to me. And I put my finger on the Bible three different times, and it kept going to the same or similar verse, which was, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And I suddenly realized what I was calling justice was revenge. It was born of hate. And it's a very understandable hate. But hate is different than anger. And I said, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. I am vengeful. Forgive me, and I give up revenge. And it was like a 2,000-pound weight, which I did not know I was carrying, disappeared from my shoulders. That's the worst kind of sin, to have something you don't know you have. Most sins, I know I got them. This one I didn't know. And I was free, and I went into battle that day. And I thought, I don't have to kill anybody. I don't have to do anything to be his ambassador. And there is a time to stop people, arrest them, and find the appropriate punishment. And maybe sometimes, you know, in the case of ISIS, you've got to shoot them but justice is all born of love and they have a chance to change as well. And you are not poisoned by anything. You have love. But when you say, I don't care what happens to them. I want my justice. and I don't care what happens to them. That's hate. You're calling it justice, but it's hate. And that will not only not change their heart, but it will come back and get you because that's Satan's business and it'll smoke you. So the only way to justice and the only way to, Spiritual and psychological sanity is love. Say, Lord, I've been hurt badly. Perpetrator, you hurt me badly. What is the right punishment so you don't do it again and you learn? It might just be, I'm sorry, or it might be a day in prison or a year or a life. I don't know. But if it's in the context of love, you will get justice. You will, the other person will have an opportunity to change, and you will not be hurt. You'll be scarred, but you won't be crippled. And you don't get through this life unscarred, but you don't have to be crippled. And that's the gift Jesus gives us.
0: David Eubank here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the book as well as the movie about Free Burma Rangers by going to the website FreeBurmaRangers.org. This is The Intersection, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by visiting meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to The Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection podcast. You can find the podcast in The Media Center as well as through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Moving on now with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the author of the book, A Manifesto, Christian America's Contract with Minorities, Harry Jackson, senior pastor of Hope Christian Church in Beltsville, Maryland, and founder and chairman of the High Impact Leadership Coalition. He shared with me about the biblically-based principles that he recommends regarding issues that members of minorities in America are facing. Here now from that
4: conversation
0: is Harry Jackson.
4: Galatians 3.26 this perfect scripture, because it says that we're neither June Greek, those are ethnic and racial distinctions, but we're one. We're neither bond or free. That's the billionaires versus the regular people. Um, and we are neither male or female. And certainly we know there are real differences between men and women. And that's why we get married, because we delight in those differences, but there's been a civil rights cry for justice that is coming from the culture, but they are not moving or progressing in a biblical way. So right now, blacks are upset, and we find that other groups are upset about their status. Black Lives Matter and what happened with George Floyd... I believe, can give us an opportunity to really start to turn around the problems of ethnicity that have been 400 years old. But the issue is, what do we agree upon? The book talks about a family trip my family took every year from Ohio to Virginia Beach. And this lengthy trip... I thought it was so my parents could get a vacation, dump off us kids, my brother and I. and But it was more than that. It was a time for the children and the family to learn the family values. And every year we took a trip. So the book gives a manifesto, which we need to save time that I can give you the nine attributes of the manifesto. The things that we need to work on in terms of attitude, opportunities that will make a huge change for us. And if we do this, it's like me riding with my family down to North Virginia from Cincinnati, Ohio. I got to learn what it meant to be a Jackson. And my family wanted me to find out all the history where, quote, quote, all the bodies were buried, and we would find out exactly what we could do to be part of the family. So I think it's time. Are we going to have a a biblical-based agenda that we can talk through we can agree on and we can smoothly use the constitution and other tools to transform America into an even greater place than it is today.
0: You in this book have nine parts of the manifesto or nine goals. There's an acrostic called empowered that represents these goals. So If you don't mind, take us through these very briefly.
4: Education reform, explain why, charter schools and such, and uh, marriage rebuilding as a social strategy. So E, education, M, marriage rebuilding, P is public policy reform like criminal justice, O, oversight of minority and community engagement, that oversight is getting involved in politics uh, as, as a citizen. W is wealth creation, such as homeownership, going from 41 42% for blacks, 46% for Hispanics, up to the equivalent of 76% for white Americans own their own homes. Our righteousness and justice as a moral guideline or lens through which we interpret our world, uh, not left versus right, empathy versus retaliation. Don't pull down the statues before you understand they've been put up. And let's look at the fact that the people on the other side of arguments are real people with feelings, and that's a Christian virtue And then finally, D, destiny with dignity for all humankind.
0: Harry Jackson here on The Intersection. His website address is harryjacksonministries.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Chip Dodd, founder of Sage Hill, a social impact organization, the Center for Professional Excellence, and chipdodd.com. And Stephen James, founder and executive director of Sage Hill Counseling, discussed principles relative to their book, Hope in the Age of Addiction, How to Find Freedom and Restore Your Relationships. Here now are Chip Dodd and Stephen James.
5: No one ever gets out of bed one day and decides, I'm going to destroy my life, yeah. I'm going to ruin my relationships with my family, I'm going to end up in prison, or I'm going to get in a wreck, or I'm going to lose my job, or I'm going to cross my moral boundaries, or I'm going to betray my my own code of conduct just so I can feel better. Like No one wakes up with that decision um, it is it, one of the problems with addiction is it, is it is affects us emotionally and spiritually. It affects us psychologically, and it affects us physiologically. So one of the problems with it is it's not it's not just a lack of belief. There's there are plenty of people who sincerely believe in Jesus and want to follow him earnestly, who are caught up by the you know, we talk in the book about this this demon, this dragon of addiction that's ensnared them. They, but they earnestly believe in God because there's other mm-hmm. things beyond just belief that go into addiction. But, but ultimately what, what happens is for the vast majority of people, life is really difficult. And somewhere along the way, we, a lot of us begin to buy into an idea that by having faith and following Christ, that we would not have to struggle. And we, we know in our heads that that's not true, but we really wish it in our hearts. So then life starts to get difficult and, and become dangerous and struggling and brings up old traumas and wounds that we have from our past. And there's things happening on an unconscious level that drive addiction that aren't just belief and willpower and even morality. It, there is some, it, it's, a, it's an honest attempt to look for security and relief from a tragic world without having to have to depend on a faithful God. It, it's, I can depend on myself in this hmm. moment in an immediate way because God seems to move really slowly it doesn't seem to answer the, my prayers in the way I want them to. But this pill, this bottle, this substance, this behavior, this phone call, this, this approval. This, at, this, this, this approval. approval. Oh, my gosh. Addiction approval, approval. I mean, just approval addiction, like trying to earn the worth of people actually creates a neurological pattern of physiological addiction in the human brain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's measurable now. Like neuroscience is caught up with what Chip has been talking about for the last 30 years that. That this is, we are made for relationship, and it is relationship that will heal us um, with ourselves, relationship with others, and obviously relationship with God. But it takes all three of those actually to stay in recovery from addiction.
6: In, in a very, very simple, but uh, although a complex walk, a simple definition is that addiction ultimately is an intolerance for vulnerability. When we lose contact with the language of how we're created, Feelings, needs, expression of desire, longings, and hope. When we diminish those five characteristics of the heart, and we're not able to expose that to others and God, then because we're made for relationship, if we can't find it through vulnerability and then development of resilience, we will end up finding something else to take the place of how we're created because we're created to belong and matter. And so we're gonna get our needs met one way or Mm. another. And I mean, even, even pastors, Bob, literally will live on the adrenaline often of the next performance. And, and they will often become isolated if they don't get enough approval. And, and, and they, if they didn't perform well enough, then they'll go into depression. They can get burned out because they become, frankly, addicted to the audience response more than they are truly in full relationship with, with God.
0: Chip Dodd and Stephen James here on The Intersection. You can learn more at chipdodd.com or sagehillcounseling.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Calvin Beisner, the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which offers a biblical worldview perspective on the environment. In our conversation, he discussed a recent video that presents a narrative of the potential destruction of rising sea levels in the Marshall Islands due to so-called climate change. Here now with some responses, Cal Beisner.
7: Well, the film tells us that <laughs> uh, that we are causing rapid global warming through our emission uh, our, our emission of uh, carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuels, and that therefore we need to stop that. It says that this uh, the sea level rise is happening much more rapidly in the past. Uh, it never actually gives a date by which the Marshall Islands are supposed to disappear which is kind of convenient because that makes it rather impossible ever to test whether these folks are actually telling the truth. But you don't date when it's supposed to come true. And you can always, uh, you know, 50 years later say, well, we haven't got there yet. It's off in the future still. Right. But the whole tenor of the entire thing really gives the impression that this is something that could happen in, oh, maybe the next 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, part of how it does that is by talking about how many, many people are leaving the Marshall Islands to live in the United States. Of course, the Marshall Islands are a, a U.S. territorial possession, and its its citizens are U.S. citizens, so they can come to Uh, the the 50 states without any visa, and they can, uh, you know, take up residence here with no trouble at all. And uh, so they point to that as sort of an indicator of how fearful people are there about the rapid rise of sea level and the threat that it poses to submerge the islands. The problem is the really good science just doesn't support that.
0: I was actually doing a little research on this the other day. You have those that say that climate change is one of a number of different issues that are included in this whole mix of what have come to be known as pro-life issues. I'm old enough uh, to remember when pro-life used to mean protecting the lives of unborn babies. Now it means climate yeah. uh, climate change? Really?
7: Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, you can still look to all of the the uh, standard dictionaries around the world, and in fact, I've I've done this and written about it in a uh, a booklet uh, called Let's see, I'm trying to remember the title of the booklet. It's published by the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, uh, and it talks about how wh- how it is that the uh, that the uh, evangelical environmental movement threatens the pro-life movement by trying to present things like fighting climate change as pro-life. But all the major dictionaries still define pro-life as opposition to abortion. And the big difference is this. Even assuming that uh, human-induced climate change has all the dangers claimed for it, and I'm quite positive that it doesn't, but assuming that it does, and that that perhaps uh, millions of people might die because of it over a lengthy period this would be centuries and centuries uh even assuming that those deaths would not be intentional they would be the unintentional result of actions that have other uh other results that are quite good uh, for example uh, the energy that we get from fossil fuels uh, provides light uh, through electricity, it provides transportation, it, pro- it provides food, clothing, shelter, health care, on and on and on. Refrigeration so food doesn't spoil. Uh, water purification, sewage sanitation, all of these things require energy. And so all of those things promote life. So there is this trade-off that goes on, even if you accept the, I think, false claims of the risks of climate change. And and whatever deaths might come are unintentional. Uh, On the other hand, with abortion, every successful procedure results in a dead baby. That's the difference.
4: Mm.
7: Pro-life means you you object to the intentional, unjust taking of human life.
0: Cal Beisner here on The Intersection. The website address is cornwallalliance.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more at meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center as well as through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Again, that's through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org content from the meeting house program can be found through the faith radio app and a variety of podcast platforms look for the faith radio podcast when you visit itunes or google podcasts spotify stitcher or tune in thanks for joining me for this edition of the intersection podcast i'm bob crittenden